Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, I want to talk to you about a really key ingredient to helping your child with anxiety or OCD. And without this ingredient, you just are going to be going uphill. And that's all about trust and communication. And I just got through doing my free series on survival tools for parents who are raising kids with anxiety or OCD. And I talk about how to create a therapeutic home environment. And I talk about the, one of the, you know, the ingredients that you need in order to do a lot of the things I discuss. And the very first ingredient I talk about is trust and communication. And in broad terms, as far as like, how much does your child trust you in general, or how good is your communication in general? And then more in depth, how much do they trust you about their anxiety or OCD? How much do they communicate with you about anxiety or OCD? And a parent was asking me, you know, do you have any resources on how to do that? Because I don't know how to do it. And I was like, of course. And I went back and (laughs) went to my website to the search button. And I'm like, I don't really have anything that like really specifically talks about this topic, which is kind of bizarre because I do talk about it in my free series as a really important ingredient. But I guess some of it is kind of a general parenting thing. You know, how do you build trust with any child or how do you communicate with any child? But then there's also that extra layer of trust and communication around the anxiety or OCD. So I thought this would be a really good podcast episode because it would be nice to be able to have something to say, here's a link, listen to this podcast. And so I want to provide you with this information because a lot of times this is the missing piece. And when you're hitting a a wall and you're like, I'm getting nothing, I'm doing all the things that I'm reading about, I'm getting nothing. My child doesn't want anything to do with anything. This can be part of the reason. So I'm going to talk to you. The first part of this podcast will be all about how to improve trust, trust in general, and then trust around anxiety or OCD. And the second part will be all about communication. Both are really, really important. But before we get started, I do want to thank NoCD for sponsoring this episode. NoCD offers affordable, effective, convenient therapy, and they're available in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., which is really helpful. So if you want to schedule a free 15-minute consultation, just to even see if NoCD is a right fit for you and your child, go to treatmyocd.com, treatmyocd.com. Link is in the show notes. I must recommend treatmyocd.com a million times a day because parents will say, I have nothing. There's no providers. And I'll always say, well, did you try NoCD? And they haven't. They've never heard of it. And so I'm like, try NoCD. And they're like, well, I'm in the UK or well, I'm in Canada. I'm like, try it. They're global. And so I'm telling you that as well. Um, All right, let's move on. So I want to talk about why this is important first, and then we'll talk about how you do it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Trust and communication sounds like a really good thing. Sounds like a, a very therapist thing to say, but what does it really mean? Well, if your child doesn't trust you, let's just talk about that piece first. If they don't trust you, then they're not going to walk through really scary, difficult things that trigger their anxiety or OCD, or even communicate what those scary triggering things are because they don't trust you. 
They're not going to open up. If I don't have trust, communication's out the door, right? And so trust is actually the precursor to communication because if I don't trust you, my communication's going to be a bit faulty with you because I'm going to be guarded. Be careful what I say. I'm going to be careful what you say. I'm not going to trust what you're saying. I'm going to read between the lines. I'm not going to trust what you say you're going to do or what you're not going to do or that you can help me or that you can't help me. I'm not going to trust you. And so trust is actually the very, very beginning. That's what we have to start with. If we don't have our kids trust, they're not going to communicate. And if they don't communicate, how am I going to help them with their anxiety or OCD? You are in the passenger seat. I say this ad nauseum, I know, but you are in the passenger seat and your child's in the driver's seat. And if, if you don't believe that, you can try to grab the wheel and good luck with that <laughs> because it's not going to stay on the road long-term. It just won't. And so we need our kids to have some communication skills and I need to have a way to communicate with my child in a way that's going to be conducive to their style of communicating. And a big part of that is I'm going to have to do some probing, some detective work. I'm going to need to know their core fear or core discomfort. I'm going to need to know a little bit more about their anxiety or OCD. I can't take what I see at at face value because there's always something deeper under that iceberg. And then I need to communicate with them. I'm their coach. I'm going to soak up information about how to parent a child with anxiety or OCD. And then I'm going to coach my child I'm going to listen to the therapist if I have one, and I'm going to walk them through difficult things or set up challenges and do those things so that they can grab the baton and help themselves. But if I'm communicating in a way that shuts them down, then they're not going to listen. And then I can't be a coach because it's going to fall on deaf ears. So you can see why this is so incredibly important. Now, caveat, because I always like caveats for those of you that are like, I have tried Natasha and I just don't have it. It doesn't mean that you have nowhere to go. It just means that your goal with your child is building trust and communication. And your goal with anxiety or OCD might be a parental approach like Ellie Lebowitz's space program. So you might be just working on pulling back your own accommodations and building up their trust and communication, which can be a little tricky when you're doing both of those. Um, So it's not that you can't do more stuff. If your child doesn't have trust or communication, but this is the first goal. I'm not going to be talking about how to do exposures or ERP with a child when trust and communication is completely shot. And so, yeah, I might be, you know, educating myself on anxiety or OCD and I might be trying to educate my child, but if I'm getting a firm wall with my child, I'm going to back up. I'm not going to start educating them about anxiety or OCD. I'm going to work on trust and communication in general. And we're going to talk about how to do that. So hang in there. But in the interim, I'm also going to soak up maybe a book or a course on how to parent a child with anxiety or OCD. I'm going to still improve my knowledge, even if my only goal right right now currently is building trust and communication with my child. And when we get narrowly focused, and this is what I talked about in my recent series, which happens twice a year. So if you missed it, don't worry about it. You'll catch it again. It'll come out well, it comes out every six months. You'll, you'll catch it in six months. But I tell parents, don't don't get overwhelmed. You know, chaos comes from not having a plan. Uh, hopelessness comes from not being proactive and knowing what your next steps are. And so no matter what the situation, there's always a next step. And we have to focus on what our goal is in that moment, in that day. It's just like if you're dealing with a crisis, like let's say, you know, God forbid there's a health crisis and someone is choking or something in front of you. The first thing that you do is you like notice what the problem is, they're choking, and then the next goal is just to go behind them and do the Heimlich maneuver 
and you're only thinking of that one goal. And I know that's a horrible example, and I'm sorry for that. <laughs> this is where, where my fear and my my uh, phobia of choking comes out very transparently on the podcast. But it's hyper focused, and it's the same with our kids with anxiety or OCD on a day to day basis. Like there's lots of fires to be put out, and there's lots of issues. You're not going to put them all out in one day. You have to be hyper focused and say, "What's my next step?" And I talk about these steps as dominoes. They're dominoes, and when you're missing a domino, you're not going to go very far, right? Because you don't have that reach. And so missing a domino and you're going to be stuck. And the first domino is trust and communication. And the first of the first domino, can that be possible? Probably not. But I said it anyway, is trust. So let's go into that. Okay. So trust, what does that mean? Well, we already kind of went over what it means, but I want to talk about how to build it. So Let's talk in basic. Let's just talk basic trust. And this is just parenting 101 stuff or human 101 stuff. Not reading someone's cues violates their trust. And so let me break that down in much more concrete terms because I hate when people talk in the clouds and I'm listening to them. I'm like, what does that mean? It sounds so good. I mean, I can put that on a fortune cookie, but what does that mean? Well, it means that if I am giving you clear signs that I want you to stop what you're doing, and I'm just talking as a human, now I'm not talking about as a parent. You know, if I'm talking to another person and I'm being very clear that I'm obviously not liking what you're doing and you're not stopping it, you know, stop tickling me. I don't like that. Or stop making that noise. It's really irritating me. And you're not respecting me. I start to not trust you on a very basic level. Like you don't do what I say. I set a boundary and you're not listening to me. Or If I don't want to talk and you're trying to talk to me and I'm clearly giving you signals that I do not want to talk. And I'm thinking, let's just, let's not think about our kids for a minute. Let's just think about humans. So think about, close your eyes if you're not driving (laughs) and think about someone who doesn't get the message when you don't want to talk. Do you have them in your head? (laughs) And you feel like I'm giving you some pretty big clues. I don't want to talk right now. I don't want to talk to you. And they're not listening. What's that feeling that you have? Like frustration, feeling almost of like violation, like, oh my gosh, like you're just wanting to get your thoughts out and you're not even respecting the fact that I'm giving you these clear signals that I don't want to talk to you, right? And then how much do you trust that person? Now think about that person. How much do you trust them? Maybe not as much because you feel like they don't get me. They don't get me. They don't stop what I don't want to stop. And I can't tell you how many times I've had kids in my practice tell me, now parents have told me this as well, so it goes both ways, but I'll have kids tell me when I don't want to talk, my mom follows me around the house or she won't let me go. I'll say, please, I don't want to talk about it right now. And she'll say, well, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to talk about it. She won't leave my room. I say, get out of my room and she won't leave my room. And then maybe she goes on a tangent about how disrespectful I am or who pays the rent, you know, those just fundamental disregard for boundary setting can impact trust. So the first step is respecting cues. And we're all guilty of violating boundaries or not respecting cues at some point or another. I can think of two instances right off the bat, the minute I think about my kids of situations where I do not respect their very obvious cues. And the first one is, what was I even trying to talk about with my son? His is more of a global thing. Like this is pretty much what happens often. He's not a communicator. And so when I'm trying to communicate with him and he's not wanting to, he will bury himself under pillows. And I've talked about this before on the podcast. And 
intellectually, I will note it and I'll be like, he's obviously hiding and squirming and he's not enjoying this conversation because it's a big clue and you got a pillow over your head and you're buried and all I can see are your feet. And I don't stop because sometimes I just want to get more information or I'm just there and I feel like I'm, we're almost there. Just listen to this little bit and then we'll be done. But that's on my terms, not his terms. And that damages our trust. And so I try not to do that, but I have moments. I do have moments where I ignore what I'm seeing, even though I recognize it. Now, a lot of you may not recognize it. So then you have to kind of pull back and say, let me look at what are my kids' nonverbal clues that they're shutting down. And that will look different for each kid. For my son, it's really obvious. It's maybe, you know, maybe the more subtle clues are he gets a little hyperactive kind of bounces back and forth. He might change the topic. My husband was really good at squirreling me. And it took like five, seven years for me to realize that he was squirreling me. He was that good, but he was a trained investigator. So I think he was really good at what he did. And like, he would just say something else so casually and he would just totally get me off topic. And um, he was very avoidant. And so that was very effective, you know, because I wouldn't really ever realize that he just completely squirreled me. Now my son does the same thing, but I'm onto him. But being onto him is different than not respecting it. So reading those clues and then responding to them is kind of our ultimate goal. It doesn't mean that we are going to allow our kids to never communicate or never deal with difficult things. It's, I, and I often say this as well, it's double Dutch, right? It's like knowing when to get in, knowing when to get out. Um, I also talk about it as a bank currency, you know, it's a withdrawal and then I need to make a deposit and I don't want to take too many withdrawals without making deposits or the relationship's going to be damaged. And so think of it in that terms. So res- respecting their their cues. If your child's not wanting to talk and they're being very overt about it, that's a trust issue. You have to respect that. The next one is not pushing them beyond their limits. And this is a tricky one because as parents and, and coaches to our children, our job is going to be to coax them and coach them and encourage them and cheerlead them to do difficult things to do things that put them out of their comfort zone, to do scary things, things that are fearful, things that are uncomfortable, things that maybe are very triggering. And that is our role. And so this is one of those, you know, you have to balance, you're like on a tightrope. So you don't want to go too far to the left or to the right. So we don't want to push our kids beyond their limits when they are completely shutting down. So if I see that my child, I'll give you an example because I love examples. I've talked about this one a lot. So you might've heard it if you listen to me often. When my daughter, my 11-year-old, this summer was, was it this summer? Gosh, my time is like, it was this summer. I feel like life is just a, a, a puddle of time <laughs> that I have no, uh, I'm not aware of, but it was this summer. So this summer, she was invited to go to a Boys and Girls Club, like Sleepaway. I think it was Boys and Girls Club, but it was like um, a sleepaway camp. And it was short notice because it was something that was gifted to us because of her dad dying. And there's so many amazing resources and things that happen in the community to support kids who are grieving, which I really appreciate. And especially also for first responders. And so we've gotten a lot of amazing things due to that, but she had short notice. So she had like a week notice, maybe two week notice. And she doesn't normally have an issue going. I did not think she had an issue. She doesn't have separation anxiety. And she has slept over at people's houses, not often because she tends to have only one friend at a time, but it's not her, it's not her issue. You know, she doesn't have, that's not her front burner issue. We've got a lot of other stuff going on. And so she was excited about camp. You know, my son said, no, I knew he'd say no, but she was excited, signed her up. And then 
like two days before it was supposed to happen, or I don't remember how long, but it was very soon after she started with the anxiety attacks and the what ifs, and I can't do this, and I'm so overwhelmed. And I looked at her face. Actually, I can't remember if this was like, she definitely wasn't packed. So it might have been like the, it might have been like the night before. I mean, I know it was very close. It doesn't really matter. I'm getting off track. But the level of sheer panic in that kid's face was a clear clue to me that this was a no-go. There was no coaching. There was no building up to it. And, you know, there was a lot of things at play. We didn't have a lot of notice to prepare her. So it's not like I think that I couldn't have gotten her to go with my coaching if we had a longer runway up to it. But because it caught us both off guard and it caught me off guard that she was like crumbling, the the reaction on her face was just complete shutdown. And so I knew I was put, that was pushing her way beyond her limits. And so I didn't have her go. Now, fast forward, and I've talked about this before, so you might've already heard this story, but a few weeks later, she had band camp, which was two hours a day, not sleepover, right around the block and just for a week and with people that she knows. So a totally different situation. But as you know, if you have kids with anxiety or OCD, or maybe you don't know, but the more you give in to anxiety or OCD, regardless of whether it was because they were beyond their limits or not, the anxiety or OCD does grow stronger. And so band camp was coming, which she never would have had a problem with. And all of a sudden she's having an issue. I can't go. I don't think I can do this. And that was something that wasn't beyond her limits. And her face didn't look like, like sheer panic. It looked like her usual anxiety. And so it was an opportunity to say, you know, your O cloud got ahead of you with the other thing and it's grown more powerful. And if we give into this one, it's going to be even a bigger beast. And then I'll make even going to school hard again. And so anyway, that's not what this episode is about, but we connected the dots and she was able to go. So I was pushing her to her limit, but not beyond her limit, right? Does that make sense? Because when we throw our kids under the bus or we do things that are um, overwhelming, we betray their trust. And I'll give you an example of when I did that, because, you know, I love to tell you about all the bad things that I do as a parent, (laughs) make you feel better. You're welcome. I was taking my son out for his 13th birthday and we were ordering ice cream. And so he has developed recently a new issue with stuttering and with social anxiety, it's really bad. I thought at the time it was just a social anxiety. Um, He was having a hard time talking to people, ordering food, talking to strangers, mainly ordering food. And, you know, I am not one of those parents because of what I do and I see how it grows it. I wasn't going to order for him, especially because it's not like he has selective mutism and we're working on this as a primary issue. It's like just kind of come out of the blue. And so I order my ice cream. My daughter orders her ice cream. And I look at him and I say, what do you want? And he kind of mumbles it to me. And I said to him, tell the, tell the lady. And I've done that in the past for him. And again, that's not his primary issue. So if he had selective mutism or other things where he wasn't able to talk to anyone outside of the house or me, I would have a different approach. But I've never ordered for him. I've never ordered for my kids, even though it's made them a little uncomfortable because I know what that can look like. and I know how big that of a problem that can get. And so I said, you order. And he started to stammer, which was new. And he couldn't get his first word out. And I let that uncomfortableness go on very long. And I think I've already told you about this. If you listen to me every, every week, but I went beyond his limits to the point where he was kind of flailing. He was stammering and he was stuttering and he couldn't get it out. 
And eventually I swooped in and I ordered for him. And then I felt really bad because I realized like, I think he's having a speech issue, which is a brand new thing. And it's worse when his social anxiety is triggered. Now, fast forward to yesterday or the day before yesterday, I think it was the day before yesterday, we were at a burger place and I ordered for my daughter. No, I didn't. She ordered for herself. I ordered for me. And then I turned to him. I said, what do you want? And he said, please order for me. And I did. Like, he's not ready for that. And as we walked out, he said, thank you for ordering for me. I just, I start to stammer. I can't get my words out. And I said to him, I don't want that to be like a forever thing. I don't want to always order for you because then it'll become a bigger problem. We have to work on, you know, your stuttering. And then we have to practice with ordering and with strangers. And he said, I'm working on it. And we started talking about like how he's working on it, but it's hard. But that's an example of me wrecking, like trying to rebuild the trust. Like, I don't want him to feel like I'm going to uh, put him out to dry, you know, in that sense or, okay, I think you get my point. Let me move on. So the third one is respecting their privacy. And this is a tricky one as well. If our kids hear us venting about them in any way, it doesn't have to be about anxiety or OCD, but especially anxiety or OCD, it shuts them down often. And it's hard because you need your people. You need to be able to vent. You need to be able to communicate. But one, we don't maybe want our kids to overhear it. And then two, they may not want you to tell everybody about their anxiety or OCD. And there has to be a give and take with that. And so if I had a child in my practice who didn't want the dad to know about her anxiety or OCD uh, and the mom wanted to keep it secret, I was not okay with that because anxiety and OCD is a family affair. And that's really setting up a really dysfunctional dynamic that's not helpful. If they wanted to give limited information to the sibling, maybe they have sexually taboo thoughts and it's embarrassing and they don't want their siblings to know their anxiety or OCD themes, that's okay. But we want to at least tell siblings about anxiety or OCD. Like it can't be a private thing in a family. Now, if grandma who lives two states away doesn't understand anxiety or OCD, and only sees the kids once a once a year for the holidays or whatever, and the child doesn't want grandma to know about it, that is their prerogative. And so you might say, well, I need my support, but they might say, I have a relationship with grandma and I don't want that to be part of my relationship. And so it's, it's different if you have a best friend and you want to vent about anxiety or OCD and you need your support versus maybe someone who has a relationship with your child and your child doesn't want that to be part of their relationship. That might be something you have to process with them. So Respecting privacy is a tricky thing because it's going to look different for each one of you, but I wouldn't vent about my kids' anxiety or OCD in front of them. I go into another room, I might talk about it, you know, wherever. Um, Even with this podcast, I will ask my kids often when they have a new issue going up, you know, happening, can I discuss that in the podcast? Is it okay? Because I want them to realize that as they're getting older, they have privacy. My kids, because they've grown up with us having just this like, anxiety and OCD advocacy, you know, in the sense that like they know globally I'm helping families all over the world, they're kind of on board with that. And so whenever I ask them, they're all, I've never, there's only one time where my daughter said, no, I don't want you talking about something. And that was a specific topic around OCD, but they're always wanting me to, to share so that we can help together as a family. If that ever changes, I'll respect that because it's their life. And so I'm very cognizant about always looping them in, especially when we have a new situation that happens. I'll say, Ooh, 
can I talk about this on the podcast? (laughs) Not that they're like my material, but it can help other people. They'll hear our stories and my kids get that. And it was funny because I was listening to my son on VR the other day and he was talking to this other kid on VR who he doesn't know in real life, but I can hear him talking. So I'm monitoring it. And I heard him talking about, I have OCD, you know, and I have OCD around food. And he was talking about something. And obviously the kid didn't get it because I could hear by his response. And he goes, dude, you're so ignorant about OCD. Like, look it up. you know. <laughs> but I felt so proud because there was no shame. Oh, I know what he was saying. He said, I have to go. I won't be, I won't be on on Friday because I have therapy. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's saying that on VR. He's not embarrassed. And then he was saying, I have, because I have OCD. I've already told you about that. So I do, I I, I do like that there is um, not stigma around it because we've been working on it and that can help with the trust. But if your child feels stigma, you have to respect that while you're working on it and can't override that. Okay. Another one is telling them your plan before you do something that might trigger their anxiety or OCD. Now that one, it can be very confusing. So let me explain. You might be pulling back accommodations. Um, you might say, you know what? My child is not on board. Their foot's on the brake. They don't want me to talk about OCD or anxiety, but I need to be starting to do stuff because I've tried to educate them. I'm trying to build trust and they're not, nothing is moving. And I know I'm a big part of the anxiety or CD. So I'm going to do my part in pulling back. If you don't communicate that with your child, trust will really be violated. So if all of a sudden I'm not answering their OCD reassurance, and I'm just saying, I'm not going to answer that. That's OCD. That can ruin your trust. It doesn't mean that you don't do it. Because, you know, if you're following the space program, it's a really important aspect to pull back your accommodations, but the trust comes in communicating it first. And so if you say, you know, and the space program walks you through it, so I'm not going to go into it here, but saying, I love you. And I know you don't want to talk about your OCD, but I've realized, and I've learned that every time I tell you, you know, the expiration date on foods, or every time I tell you that you are a good person when when you have a bad thought, or every time I tell you, you're not going to throw up. When you feel like you're going to get sick, I'm growing your OCD or your anxiety. And so from now on, for my part is I'm going to say to you, I'm sorry, your OCD is upsetting you, but tell your OCD, I don't talk to it. Or I might say, I know your OCD is trying to talk to me, but I'm not going to talk to it because I love you or whatever you're going to say, right? It doesn't matter. But the point is I'm preemptively explaining that to my child. And I'm saying, this is how I'm going to answer you from now on. That doesn't mean they're going to love it. Trust doesn't mean that your child loves everything you do, right? You can't operate from a place of wanting your child to sign off on every parental approach you're going to take for anxiety or OCD because they're not going to sign off on much, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about communicating ahead of time. It's like your child's learning to swim. And so you take them and you throw them in the deep end and you say, I bet you'll learn how to swim. We don't want to do that. But we say, we're going to get in the water. You know, and I'm going to hold you for a little while and I'm going to let go and you're going to get to the edge and then, you know, whatever. And so I'll give you a concrete example of this one as well. My son has been over apologizing, a little moral OCD going on. And, you know, before I shifted how I was going to respond to that, because it took me a little while to figure it out because that wasn't one of his primary subtypes. I said, you know, we, we discussed, Hey, I noticed you say you're sorry a lot. You know, you, do you think that's squishy? And we kind of went into the whole conversation. And then I said, from now on, when you say, I'm sorry, I'm going to tell you, sorry, not accepted because I love you. And if I say it's okay, you say, I'm sorry. And I say, it's okay. I am like metaphorically washing your hands. Like I'm the sink and I don't want to be the sink. And so 
Whether he was in agreement or not, moving forward, that's how I would answer. Luckily, he was in agreement. He didn't like it at first when I did it, but now he kind of laughs and now he doesn't do it at all. So we've kind of progressed. But my point is, I wasn't going to do it to him. I was going to do it with him, even if he wasn't on board. Does that make sense? Okay. I think you get it. The last thing about building trust before we take a break is do fun things outside of anxiety or OCD. Don't have your kids think that that's all you think about, even if it is. And it's all you see them as, even if it's true, because it can be all consuming. So pick one activity that your child likes or one thing that your child likes to talk about and make it a point to develop or foster some sort of like routine or tradition or pattern in your, in your week or your day that involves that. And I'll give you some examples. My daughter is really easy. My youngest, because she's just, she likes to run errands with me. She likes to be my sidekick. And I totally appreciate that because now being on my own without my husband, it is nice to have someone who wants to hop in the car and run errands with me. My son never wants to do that. And so I so greatly appreciate her, but she also loves TikTok and she's not allowed to have a TikTok because she's 11, but I got on TikTok. (laughs) So find me if you want to and follow me because it's not my platform, but somebody told me you should be on TikTok. And I'm like, there's no parents on TikTok. And apparently there are. So I am on TikTok, but it's, I am uploading quick videos, one minute videos every day to Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube shorts. And, oh, and I'm doing it on Facebook. Cause I'm like, why not? If I'm making a video, like a one minute video every single day, like every day, 30 days, 31 days a month, every single day, (laughs) I batch them. So it's not that bad, but I upload the exact same video to all of those platforms. So follow me on one of them and you'll get like daily advice from Natasha. One minute tip. Um, it has to be a minute because YouTube shorts is a minute long, which is super annoying because I can't talk that fast. Uh, I try. But I think it's like 10 minutes on TikTok. And I think it's like 90 seconds on Instagram. So I have to find the sweet spot. Anyway, not my point at all. But she does love TikTok. And because I've gotten into TikTok, oh my gosh, I really like TikTok. Does that mean I'm a bad person? (laughs) I'm just kidding. So I really like watching dog videos and cat videos. It, It makes me laugh and nothing makes me laugh these days. So it's nice to get like a hearty laugh. I like to watch, there's this one girl that does like makeup, like not actual makeup because I don't wear makeup very well. I don't contour my face. It's just not me. But um, like costume makeup or cake making. Anyway, kids, there's a lot of funny stuff on there. So I think the algorithm just really responds to what you like and what you watch because my 19-year-old daughter's TikTok does not look like my feed (laughs) at all. So I trust my feed. So one thing that we've been doing lately, because she sees it as such a privilege, is we sit on the couch and we just scroll through TikTok. We play with the filters and it's been really bonding. I don't have to worry what will come up because it's my feed with my algorithm, which is like very like kindergarten, but we laugh and we do filters and I get lost in that too. And so that's a good bonding. That's not about anxiety or OCD. And that builds our relationship. I know that sounds stupid, but when we do the things that our kids like, it builds our relationship. Now I do have a harder time with my son because there's less of that bridge. My daughter's easier because she likes similar things to what I like, but that just means I have to make more of an effort. And so, and I want to find something that I actually do enjoy on some level, 
So I'm not going to say we're going to sit there and we're going to play VR together because I don't really enjoy that. Or let's just play Minecraft together. Now you might enjoy that and that'd be great because I mean, if you can find what they're passionate about and then that you like it as well, like TikTok sitting there for an hour watching TikTok actually is very relaxing for both of us. So win, win. He uh, likes to watch some cartoons, some a little adultish cartoons. He's 13 and we've started watching them together and they're not painful for me to watch because <laughs> some things are painful. Like I'm like, I can't, I'm like, I'll never get that hour back. And it upsets me, which is stupid. I know. So we have said, okay, we're going to like this new episodes come out on Sundays. Let's just watch the new episodes on Sundays. And it's a bonding thing. Cause then he can talk to me about it because I do find with my son, he tends tends to talk more about anxiety and OCD with me. Like, I feel like that's all he thinks of when he sees me. And I don't want that to be our relationship. And so working hard to do fun things outside of that. And it, like I said, it'll be easier with some kids than others. And that's okay. That's just a relationship thing. It's just, you know, some kids are into things that are more interesting to you than others. And that just means you have to work on it a little bit harder. It doesn't have to be a daily thing either. Don't like, you know, do things that are you know, going to strain you, find things that fit into your routine and your comfort. So if you run errands, just bring a kid with you and go grab like a Starbucks or drive through McDonald's and get like a milkshake or something and make it a little bit extra special. And that helps build the trust. Okay. (laughs) So after the break, I want to give you just some tips on how to improve your communication style. Some things that parents tend to do that shut down communication and some very quick, easy ways to Um, augment your communication in a way that will make it more conducive for a kid to open up and give you information and talk to you. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. It's time we put help directly in our kids' hands. Introducing Crushing OCD Course for Kids and Teens. It was way more helpful than all the other therapy we've ever done because we didn't really know what to do. So we weren't really doing it before. So the course helped to figure out what the exposures are and how to do them. We're not in therapy and find it really hard um, to find an ERP trained therapist here. Um, So we're currently with like the public health service, but again, they don't seem to be trained in ERP. It's filled that gap that we don't have that was desperately needed. This was really well timed for us to use between therapists and to help us like start get off to a good start with this new practice. It was easy to use. Um, I was able to do it from my phone or also on the computer. There's different ages, you know, so there were younger kids, there were teenagers. And um, so that was really nice too to have a variety of ages where it wasn't just geared towards younger kids or older kids. It was a nice variety. It's helpful for our kids to hear it from this like third party as opposed to just us saying it. I really like the offense and defense method. I love working on poking at OCD while it's sleeping. It makes it a little bit easier to do and it's kind of fun. <laughs> I'm planning on using it to work on my uh, fear of like holding your touching batteries and stuff like that. So it was really helpful and I think a lot of other kids would like it. I thought that I was like the only one who had worrying about the weather and stuff. And then there was somebody else on there who worried about the same thing, which was really helpful. Seems less scary to work on stuff now that I've watched this class and I'm more interested to work on it. I like trying to do more exposures still and going to, before I wasn't, I just didn't want to do them. I've worked on some of my bigger compulsions and been successful. I realized that it was helpful to do like the exposures before it was like really, really hard. It's still hard, but 
it's helpful to know that I need to do them. Before there would be a lot of battles about it, so it is definitely less loggerheads. Really, really good course and super helpful. Definitely would recommend this. It's really easy to follow. It's in nice bite-sized videos. I really like the worksheets that go along with it, and I think it's really helpful. To learn more about this course and register your child or teen, go to atparentingsurvivalschool.com. All right, well, welcome back. Let's move into communication styles. And so if you don't have any communication, let's start with some of the basics, things that will shut down a communication. Now, I do have a whole podcast on this, so I don't want to go over that too much because you can listen to episode 111 called um, Want Your Kids to Talk to You, Why Your Reaction Matters. And that can be a really good one to, to listen to. And it will kind of go over you know, some things that we say that tend to shut our kids down without really understanding why that is. Okay. Let me get back on track. I was getting lost on my website. <laughs> I'm like, what, do I have anything else that would help you? Let me focus. So some of the common pitfalls, and this is just parenting 101, but it's something that we all do at times. And I know I'm guilty of doing this a lot with, especially my older child. And I like learned the hard way where she shut down and wouldn't talk to me. And then I, I think one day I actually even just said, why don't you talk to me anymore? And she told me, and these are the pitfalls I'm going to talk about right now. Advice giving. I was very quick to swoop in and tell her all the things that she should do, shouldn't do, should have done, could do. And maybe she didn't even want my advice. And so instead of listening, we're going to talk about this. I wanted to swoop in. And part of it was because I knew what was happening. And I did, to be honest, and I knew what she was doing wrong socially. And she was having all these social problems in sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And she was like really having a lot of, she'd make friends. And then she would do these things that I knew were like socially off or weren't socially appropriate. And then she would tell me like their reactions and eventually I'd get the full story. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, no wonder why, like you can't do that or that. Of course they got mad because, and instead of recognizing that just because I know what the problem is, doesn't mean that I just need to spit it out of my mouth, that there's a little bit more of a tactful way to get kids to see A, then eventually equals B. You know, I just want to tell her, you know, I was like, yeah, of course they're mad. You can't. Da, da, da. And so she said, the feedback I got was, it's always my fault. I've always done something wrong. You always give me advice and I'm always blamed for it. And partly she was, she was right. And some of it was, I was just trying to help her. And so I would say, okay, go back tomorrow. And if you tell her, da, 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 or this is how you can talk to her. And to be fair, it was good advice. <laughs> That's what I do for a living. I get kids. I get teenagers. Like it was very apparent, but I wasn't helping her. And that's my goal. And so sometimes we have to tweak our communication style to fit our child, their self-esteem, the pace in which they want to hear this information, if at all. We have to learn when to bite our tongue. I had to tell her, and this was like a couple of years later. So I think she kind of started, stopped talking to me around 11 where I'd say, how was your day? Good. Like I got nothing from her. And then around 13, I addressed it because it was very apparent that I was being stonewalled. And at 13, I said, look, you're hundred percent right. I need to just respect you and listen to you. And from now on, when I say, you know, how was your day? I am not going to give you any advice. And um, I want you to trust me and give me a second chance. And so we had to have this really heart-to-heart -heart conversation. And she started to very slowly 
And can I tell you how hard it was? <laughs> I mean, I literally at times would bite my tongue or I would sit on my hands as a remind, like a physical reminder to just shut up. <laughs> you know? I wanted to talk so badly. And I just kind of go back to my therapy, like 101 communication classes and just reflect back. So I was very Rogerian. I was like, um, that must've made you very sad. Or that sounds like a really difficult situation. And I honestly, the first time I did it, we're driving in the car. I picked her up after school. Like, I still remember this and I have a very bad memory. And she was having a problem and she was so upset that she forgot that she wasn't going to talk to me anymore. And I can't believe she did that, mom. You know, they're so rude. And I wanted to swoop in and say something like, well, what did you do? Like, what made them do that to you or whatever, you know, which is kind of a blaming kind of question. And instead, I was like, oh, that must have been really hard. And like the whole car ride, I'm just reflecting back to her. And I thought she's going to call me on this crap. Like she's going to be like, why are you talking like that? Or like, why are you speaking that way? Because it felt so awkward and not natural. And she got out of the car and she goes, you know, it's been really actually helpful to talk to you today. (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh, this is not natural for me. And I, I mean, I had to learn it therapeutically. You know, as a therapist, you have to learn how to keep the pace in a conversation and not feed it and how to, you know, validate people's feelings or whatever. But when it's your own kid, you're not using those tools and skills. And so that, that is how we improved our communication. And then I would say to her, and this is something that I think can be really helpful if you're not sure, she would vent and I would say, do you want me to just listen? Or are you going to want some support? Or after she would vent and I would kind of validate it at the end, I'd say, do you want some support and guidance or, or do you got this? And sometimes she would say, I just want support. And sometimes she'd say, yeah, I want your opinion. Or sometimes I wouldn't give it to her because I was so nervous. And she'd say, tell me what to do. And I'd say, okay. you know. And I would have to tell her what to do in it also in a a non-blamey sort of way. Oh, instead of saying this, you should have said this. I had to be very cognizant of how I was presenting the solution. So pay attention to those things. I would say the number one complaint I ever heard in my therapy sessions from kids that was outside of anxiety or OCD, but related to the parental relationship was I get too much advice or my parent just, my mom gives me so much advice or she only listens. She doesn't listen to me. She just gives advice. Um, The other thing I would say, which I don't think that I have this, I don't think this bothers my kids, but I have seen it in my practice. I've seen it in family sessions where a child's talking and then a parent will just dominate and talk about their experience and their life. I would see this more with dads. And I'm just saying that antidotally. I'm not saying that all men are like this, but I don't know why it tended to be the father. Not always, sometimes the mom, but I don't know if, I don't know what that's about, but that is just what I saw as a pattern in my practice. It could have just been a coincidence, but more often than not, if the dad was going to go and talk about his past, he would kind of relate things to him. And then it would be like, you know, when I was younger and then now we're in like this huge conversation about him and it's completely not related to the kid at all. So be careful about taking over the conversation and making it about yourself in communication. If you're going to tell a story, if you're going to talk at all, you know, and it is really helpful for kids to hear your own stories and stuff. And I mean, obviously I'm a huge storyteller. It's what I do. I mean, look at this podcast. I mean, I, I weave, it's like part part anxiety and OCD therapy and part like the real world of Natasha Daniels. (laughs) But I think that helps. I think that it gives you a concrete understanding of what's going on in in my world and how do the things I'm talking about abstractly play out. And in my therapy, my therapy approach was very similar. I would tell stories 
stories about generic other kids, you know, without giving any confidentiality issues. I'd, I'd smush, you know, a couple of cases together, or I would talk about my own experiences or my experiences with my kids. Or if I'm talking to a parent, I talk about my own parenting experiences with the intention of what is the purpose of this, of this story? You know, how is this proving a a connection to what we're discussing or highlighting a concrete example, it, it had to be related. So it's not just, I'm taking over the conversation to talk about my struggles. And so we have to be careful about that when we're talking to our kids. My kids love my stories, but it's normally tied, if I'm talking about their anxiety or OCD, it's tied into why we're doing this right now or how I understand what you're going through. But, you know, everyone's pain is different. You know, it showed up like this for me. We don't want to assume that we know exactly what they're going through. There's nothing more frustrating than that. I know what you're going through. I went through that when I was in eighth grade. Kids don't often like that. If you phrase it in a different way, like my kids love hearing my stories, but as I'm telling a story, I'm gauging their level of interest. And this is something we have to do with communication is keep track of, are they making eye contact? Do they seem bored? Are they squirmy? Are they trying to change the topic? Do they look like they're disengaged? Because if you're seeing that with anybody, not just your kids, That means that you got to slow your roll and wrap it up, save it for another time. I've had conversations with my kids where to me, it is a very easy 40 minute conversation. And I've had to have that easy 40 minute conversation in small increments over a period of days instead of one 40 minute conversation, because I would get the whole I'm done look and I had to end it. And then I'd have to pick back the piece at a different day when I saw an opportunity and so that double dutch thing, right? You know, I had a, I saw like a little break in the jump rope. I had to jump back in, but I had to get out when I saw that it was going down. It's the same thing for our for any communication, but especially with our kids, with your partners or your friends as well, like paying attention <laughs> to some social cues that can be really helpful because um we don't want to over communicate to the point where we're we're now we're like dipping into the red in our communication bank account. We don't want to do that. The next one I would say is try to avoid why questions. I've said this a lot, so you may have already heard me say this in the past, but I think it's a good one to just add in here. And so saying things like, why are you scared? Or why does that bother you? Or why can't you eat that? Or why can't you go to sleep? Or why can't you go to school? It can sound accusatory. It's not the intention of the parent. But when we say why questions, it puts kids on the defensive. Instead of saying why, say, what's the hardest part about? What's the scariest part about? Trust me, it makes a difference. I talk about this all the time because that simple switch in how you ask a child a question will make a difference between whether it's a fruitful response or a shutdown response. Now, not always, your child might not answer you or they might say, I don't know. And again, I don't know. We see that as like the end of a conversation. I see it at the beginning. (laughs) Well, that's because I'm a therapist, right? So if my kid says, I don't know, And they really don't know, I'm going to maybe try to, you know, push it through. And I might say something like, well, if you did know, what would be your best guess? I'm surprised at how many kids in therapy actually answered that. Like, you just told me, I don't know, but now you're answering. Um, Or I'd say, but if you did know, what would it be? You know, so if you did know, what would it be? Or if you had to guess, what would it be? I'm not going to do that ad nauseum to the point where I'm frustrating a kid, but sometimes it helps to push through because they may not. 100% no, but then they're thinking, well, let me guess, what could it be? And that gives you a little bit more string to pull. Or they're shut down and they don't want to answer, and your little nudge actually can open up a door. That's happened many times in therapy sessions. So those are just some basic ones. Um, I think 
The overall takeaway for this episode is paying attention to building trust, respecting your child's boundaries, that relationship. They're not always going to be your child, your little child, and you're the parent. You're fostering a human relationship, and a human relationship is reciprocal. And so it is, um, we're not living in the 1950s anymore. You know, our kids are in a different time where, and it should always have been like this, but they're, they're humans and they have to be treated with respect just because they're kids doesn't mean that we dominate them and they have no say or no feelings. Respect is a two-way street. And that's why when my kids say something to each other, like shut up, or, you know, I'll say, you know, none of us talk to each other that way. Like we're about respect and it's not okay. Or if they lie to me, I'll say stuff like, I wouldn't lie to you. You know, I wouldn't tell you, yeah, don't worry about it. I made your lunch. It's in the fridge. And then in the next day being like, actually I didn't, I was just, you know, really busy. I wouldn't do that to you. So showing our kids that mutual respect and how it goes both ways is really important. And then communication is always a tricky one and you have to circle back. You can't always just be one and done with communication. It changes. They, they change developmentally, hormonally, you know, they grow different ages and they grow different ways of communicating and we have to tweak and we have to adapt during those periods of time. So communication and trust is never ending. It is a process and it's a practice and it's a practice that we have to show up for every day because every day is a new day and trust and communication can be built really quickly and it can be ripped down really quickly too. So I hope that you found this helpful. Um, If you're enjoying my podcast, don't forget to hit a star and rate it. Believe me, it actually does really help this podcast. If you have a few extra seconds and you leave a review, that really helps. Not only does it help the podcast, which I appreciate, um, and my self-esteem, which I doubly appreciate, but more importantly, for sure, is that it helps parents know that this there's some value in carving out some time to listen to an episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. So thank you for that. If you leave a review, I'll be reading it next time because I looked and I don't have any reviews since the end of October. So come on, (laughs) leave a review and I'll read it for you. Um, I hope that you find the sparkle in everything you do and I'll talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com.